Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. The lead story, once again, is the Omicron virus. Some people are saying that we've passed the peak. We're over the hump. Infection rates, hospitalization rates are dropping around the country. Now is the time to throw away your mask and liberate yourself. Other people are saying, well, not so fast. I mean, it's only a piece of cloth we're talking about. And we're still not over the hump totally. People are still going to be hospitalized. People will still die. And a word of caution. Should we really throw away the mask when there's so many uncertainties? Well, we'll say a few things about that on exploration. Next, the Webb Space Telescope is in position and now releasing its first batch of photographs. It's a $10 billion space telescope. It has seven times the ability to capture these glorious photographs from outer space compared to the Hubble Space Telescope. But, well, don't get your hopes up. The initial pictures could be rather ordinary looking. After all, we're talking about photographing a bunch of stars. You can see stars at night just by going outside. But we'll talk about the larger implications when the Webb Space Telescope really cranks up and is up to speed. And fusion is in the news again. We're talking about a replacement perhaps for fission reactors around the world. It turns out that in England, there is a prototype, a smaller version of the ITER based in France, and that set a world's record just a few days ago. Five seconds. Five seconds it generated a burst of energy. So what does it mean? Well, it means that by 2025, in a few more years, we could attain break-even, which is the holy grail of fusion research. And speaking about fusion, we'll say a few things about solar flares from outer space. Elon Musk of SpaceX is sending thousands of mini-satellites into orbit. And of course, some of them are vulnerable to solar flares. And sure enough, as soon as 49 satellites were launched into orbit, 40 of them, 40 out of 49 satellites, were hit by a massive solar flare causing 40 of them to become inoperable, and they will eventually plummet back to the planet Earth. So what does it mean if we have to have a weather report of solar flares? I mean, what happened in 1859? We have what is called the Carrington event. A gigantic solar flare hit the Earth, wiped out telegraph wires across northern Europe and the United States. If it happened again, Property damage could be on the order of $2 trillion. Also, news on the medical front. 100,000 Americans, approximately, suffer from something called sickle cell anemia, for which there is no cure. However, there are inroads being made. Drugs, for example, also bone marrow transplants, and gene therapy. Gene therapy had a lot of hype 10, 20 years ago. And the hype was not really justified. But now we're realizing that we've learned a lot about gene therapy. And now trials are taking place to repair the bad gene of sickle cell anemia, 
which affects 100,000 Americans, mainly African Americans and Latinos. Well, let's jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The big story, once again, is the coronavirus, and a debate, once again, is erupting concerning, well, the mask. Should you throw them away? Have we passed the peak? Well, some people are saying that demographically speaking, we have passed the peak. Infection rates, hospitalization rates are peaking around the country. But just because we're on the other side of the hump, does that mean you can throw away your mask? Some people are saying, well, yeah, why not? I mean, we, we beat the virus. Throw away those masks. They're not that effective anyway. Well, there's some truth to that. They're not 100% effective. It's very easy for small aerosol particles to penetrate the mask. But, hey, look, we're talking about life and death. People are still dying. People are still being hospitalized because of this virus. Yes, we are in some sense over the hump, but that doesn't mean that people are not going to die as a consequence. So my personal attitude is, given this patchwork, this patchwork of conflicting recommendations by the CDC, different governors around the country, given all that uncertainty, I think it's probably worthwhile to keep the masks on for a little bit longer. Sorry about that. Also, the Webb Space Telescope has now brought back the first pictures from outer space. The Webb Space Telescope is a $10 billion space telescope. It is seven times more powerful than the older Hubble Space Telescope. It is one million miles from the Earth right now in what is called the Lagrange Point 2. And it's now sending the first photographs back to Earth. But hey, don't get your hopes up. We had some spectacular pictures from the Hubble, but it took time. It took time for the Hubble to get up to speed. In fact, when the Hubble was first launched into orbit years ago, it was nearsighted. They polished the mirrors incorrectly. Boy, was that an embarrassment. We had to send a second crew into outer space to fix the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope was basically nearsighted. Well, we don't expect to have that problem with the Webb Space Telescope, but the first pictures from the Webb are not going to be so sensational. But eventually, they probably will. Now, the Hubble was good for optical frequencies and ultraviolet. The Webb Space Telescope is good for infrared frequencies and optical frequencies. And why is that important? Well, first of all, infrared radiation allows you to see through dust clouds a little bit better. For example, every night, by rights, you should be able to see a fireball, a gigantic fireball rising every night in the direction of Sagittarius, which is the center of the Milky Way galaxy. But when you look at the constellation Sagittarius, what do you see? Nothing. Just a bunch of stars, and that's about it. Because dust clouds totally obscure the galactic center. Otherwise, it should outshine the moon. And so that's one of the problems that astronomers have, dust clouds. Well, infrared, because it's heat radiation, can look at dust clouds from a different perspective. And so we also hope to penetrate what is called the dark age. The universe is about 13.8 billion years old. But in the first billion years of the, Earth's, the universe's existence, there was a dark age, Stars did not yet ignite 
It took time for the first stars to ignite. So there was a dark age that we don't know hardly anything about that dark age right after the Big Bang. And so the Webb Space Telescope will give us the first inkling of what the dark age was like before the first stars begin to ignite. Also, I'm looking forward to the fact that the Webb Space Telescope just might have the resolution power to photograph extrasolar planets orbiting other stars. Now, this is amazing. Who would have thought, who would have thought that one day we would have a gigantic telescope in outer space, a million miles from the Earth, photographing other planets in other solar systems throughout the Milky Way galaxy? Well, that's just some of the things that we expect from the Hubble Space Telescope and the Webb Space Telescope, its successor. We hope to have better pictures of black holes, neutron stars, the dark age, the galactic center, you name it. We can't wait to see what wonders the Webb Space Telescope will photograph for us. Also, fusion power is in the news. You know, there's a joke that says that every 20 years, physicists say that fusion power is just another 20 years into the future. Well, it's kind of like a broken record, but this time we could finally be approaching the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail of fusion research is break-even. The ability to extract as much energy from a fusion reactor as we put in. That number is called Q. When Q equals one, that means you've attained break-even. Well, at Oxford in the United Kingdom, there is the JET fusion reactor, the Joint European Reactor, and it attained Q as one-third. Now, that's not Q is equal to one, but Q is equal to one-third is still an achievement for five seconds. That is a world's record. Now, it may not sound much because, of course, a coal plant has Q greater than one for more than five seconds. But for a fusion plant, that is a sun in a bottle, this is a milestone. It's a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen in 2025. Mark that down in your calendar. If all goes well, in 2025, the giant ITER reactor in southern France will attain Q is equal to 1 and is designed to get to Q is equal to 10. That is, to create 10 times more energy than it consumes. That's the goal of the ITER. So watch for it in the year 2025. Now, the advantages of fusion power are many. Fusion power is different from fission power, that is, uranium power. Fission power has a problem of nuclear waste, tons and tons of nuclear waste. You realize that for every reactor you see out there, one-third of the core, one-third of the core, becomes nuclear waste after just one year's operation. That means there's thousands of tons of nuclear waste piling up. So that's one problem. The next problem with fission power, that is uranium power, is meltdowns. All that nuclear waste is hot. Even if you turn off the reactor, the nuclear waste just keeps on burning through and can melt right through the reactor vessel, like what happened at uh, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, at Fukushima. We had melting incidences where the core was destroyed and parts of the vessel were also destroyed. So meltdowns, that's also a problem. 
and also, of course, the cost for fuel. Uranium is not for free. Now, contrast that with fusion power. Fusion power, the fuel is for free. We're talking about seawater, hydrogen from seawater. There's almost no nuclear waste to speak of. It's just hydrogen gas creating helium. Helium is actually commercially valuable. You can sell helium power, which is the waste product of a fusion reactor. So you don't have mountains and mountains of deadly nuclear waste that have to be sequestered from the environment for millions of years. And because there's no nuclear waste to speak of, there are no meltdowns. Because meltdowns are driven by the heat of nuclear waste. So what about the downside of fusion power? Well, the big downside of fusion power is it doesn't exist yet. That is, we have not yet hit Q is equal to 1 for a fusion reactor. Now, it, fusion reactors do create a little bit of nuclear waste. That is the steel. The steel of the reactor does become slightly radioactive, but that could be disposed of. We're not, we're not talking about hundreds of tons of nuclear waste coming out of the reactor. Well, we'll have to wait and see. 2025, that's when we hope to achieve break-even with the ITER fusion reactor in southern France. And also, solar flares are in the news. Elon Musk has a very ambitious plan to send thousands thousands of mini-satellites into outer space so that everyone can have internet access. You know, we're, we take for granted the fact that in cities, internet access is easy. But if you're in the middle of the South Pole, if you're in the middle of a desert, you may not get internet reception. So that's where these mini-satellites come in. Elon Musk's goal is to send thousands of them into orbit to bring the internet to every place on the planet Earth. In fact, 2,000. 2,000 of these mini-satellites are already in orbit around the Earth. The goal is to get up to maybe 42,000 satellites orbiting the planet Earth. So, what's the problem? Well, first of all, astronomers are not happy about this at all because it creates light pollution. And photographs, photographs of the night sky will be marked by streaks of light because these satellites will create a little bit of light because of reflection, and they're going to damage the photographs of astronomers. Plus the fact you have solar flares. One day after Elon Musk launched 49 satellites on SpaceX, a solar flare hit the Earth, expanded the atmosphere of the Earth. The satellites then came tumbling down as they went into the atmosphere of the Earth, 40 of 49 satellites were doomed as a consequence. So, in other words, in the future, you'll have to have a weather report. A weather report not of the jet stream or cold fronts and warm fronts on the Earth. No, we'll have to have a weather report of the sun. When is the next solar flare going to hit? Well, we were lucky this time, actually, because a giant solar flare... A giant solar flare could cause tremendous damage to the entire planet. That's what happened. This is not science fiction. This is what happened in 1859. There was the Carrington event. A gigantic solar flare erupted on the sun, as seen by astronomer Carrington. It was tracked. Tracked as it then hit the Earth's atmosphere, causing a rain of radiation to come down, causing the aurora borealis to engulf the northern hemisphere. 
The aurora borealis could be seen in Cuba, Mexico, Japan, China, all over the Earth. You can see this gigantic aurora borealis as the solar flare hit the planet Earth, knocking out telegraph wires. That's right, we had telegraph back in the 1859s, and telegraph wires burnt. Fires erupted in telegraph sites. So it was a problem, but we were at the beginning of the electric age. You know, these gigantic solar flares have been happening for millions and millions of years, but we didn't have any electronics. Most people went about their daily chores totally oblivious about the fact that in outer space there was a gigantic solar flare causing the aurora borealis everywhere. People didn't know. Now we know. We have electronics and we have to worry about them. So physicists have analyzed the Carrington event of 1859, looking for eyewitness accounts, looking for recorded history, and then reconstructing that incident for modern times. Well, the results are horrible. First, it means satellites are going to get wiped out. The internet, telecommunications, TV were going to get wiped out by the solar flare. Then power plants. Power plants on the planet Earth will short-circuit because of the surge of electrical energy. This means uh, the internet, also power, also um, rescue queues will come in to try to rescue people who might be injured, but they're also going to be immobilized because their cars may not work. Food riots will take place because after a while, people are going to run out of food. Food will start to rot. So in other words, the property damage for another Carrington event could be $2 trillion, as, to, as estimated by physicists. So what do we do about it? We went to Congress and asked them for a pittance, a few million dollars, to reinforce satellites, to have redundancies in our power system, to have an alert system to protect us and give us warning about another Carrington event. And what did we get? We got the giggle factor. Congress basically giggled at us and threw us out. Well, watch out. We warned you. Physicists issued the warning. Another Carrington event is inevitable. It will happen. We don't know when. But when it does happen, there could be a paralysis as we are thrown 150 years into the past. Think of what it's like to live in the pre-electric age. That's where we might be if we have yet another Carrington event. And remember, we are sitting ducks. We're sitting ducks for another Carrington event. We're not reinforcing satellites. We're not creating redundant systems. We're not creating insulation. Things that would cost a pittance, we're not doing. The only thing we do, by the way, is that we tell the astronauts on the International Space Station to move to a different compartment when it seems as if there's a solar flare about to erupt. Also, on the health front, sickle cell anemia is in the news. Now, genetic diseases have been with us since the dawn of time. In the United States, for example, if you're Jewish, you have to worry about the possibility of Tay-Sachs. If you're Northern European, you have to worry about the possibility of cystic fibrosis. But if you're African-American or Latino, you have to worry about sickle cell anemia. 
It's not a small problem. It afflicts about 100,000 people in the United States alone. And it's not a pleasant disease. It causes severe pain and a shortened lifespan. People rarely live beyond their 40s if they have sickle cell anemia because of the recurrence of cardiovascular disease, strokes, and things like that. So what's the problem? The problem with these three illnesses, Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis, and sickle cell anemia, they're caused by a misspelling in one gene. That's right, one gene goes berserk and causes these problems. For sickle cell anemia, it's the HBB gene, which regulates hemoglobin. Now, hemoglobin, when it's working properly, makes your blood vessels nice, ripe, and flexible so that it can go through the capillaries of your body. So that's one of the good things that hemoglobin does for us. It makes sure that our blood cells are nice and squishy and soft. However, there's a mutated version of the HBB gene that causes hemoglobin to go berserk. And the blood cell curls up into a sickle shape. A sickle shape is not fluffy. It's not flexible. In fact, it jams and creates blood clots. It jams the capillaries of the body, causing pain. So why do we even have that gene at all? Well, one copy of the gene actually protects you against malaria. And malaria, of course, is a problem in sub-Saharan Africa. So that's a good aspect. Good aspect of the sickle cell anemia gene is that it does give you some protection against malaria, especially if you're in sub-Saharan Africa. But if you have two copies of the gene, watch out. You could have sickle cell anemia. So what do you do if you have this genetic disease? Well, actually not much. But over the years, some therapies have emerged, but they all have side effects. One is bone marrow transplants. Bone marrow transplants sound like a great idea, but you have to have a match. A match to have the bone marrow transplant, and finding a match is not so, not so easy. You have to ask all your family members. And there are side effects with bone marrow transplants, because of course you're tinkering with the body and the bones of your body. That's a problem. There's also a promising drug, hydroxyurea, that is being prescribed for many people with sickle cell anemia. But the mother of all cures, the holdout, the way to end this disease once and for all, many people believe, is gene therapy, fixing broken genes. Now, you may say to yourself, now, wait a minute, 20 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, wasn't there a lot of hype around gene therapy? We're all going to fix our broken genes and become almost superhuman and super healthy? Well, yeah, gene therapy was oversold back then. People thought that you simply fix broken genes. I mean, after all, there are 5,000 genetic diseases that we're aware of that have afflicted the human race. And some of these uh, gene therapy, some of these gene illnesses are quite nasty. Um, for example, if you take a look at the British monarchy, uh, monarchies in general interbreed with each other. And so diseases like hemophilia can erupt. 
and King George, King George that the United States people revolted against uh, during the American Revolutionary War, was mad. King George was insane. And some people think that caused him to mistreat the colonies, which then led to the formation of the United States of America. And scientists have even tried to reconstruct which, which disease King George had that drove him insane that in some sense helped to precipitate the American Revolution. Or for that matter, think of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. It turned out that uh, the Tsar Nicholas II had a child who had hemophilia. There was a mystic, a monk called Rasputin, who had control over the child and exerted tremendous influence on national policy, delaying reforms. And some people think that indirectly, the delaying of reforms by Rasputin led to the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, there is hope now in the United States. Uh, now we're beginning trials, gene therapy trials for sickle cell anemia. And what does that involve? First of all, it involves extracting blood from the body, processing it, and then injecting it with a virus. Now, this is a good virus, hopefully, a virus that is denatured in some sense so that it's not infectious, so it doesn't cause bad side effects, and has the good gene, the good HBB gene inserted. And then you insert it back into the body. Now, sounds great, right? You take out blood, you treat the blood, and put blood back into the human body with the good gene. Well, there are problems. What happened to all the hype 10, 20 years ago? Well, many problems emerged. What is the virus? You have to inject the good gene into the body. Now, how do you do that? Injecting a gene into the body is not an easy task, but viruses do it all the time. In fact, that's why viruses kill you. They inject their genetic material into the cell. So why not, why not denature the virus why not put the good gene in the virus, and so you get infected by the good gene? Well, that's the hope. And years ago, that hope was dimmed by the fact that there was a fatal incident involving this, and there were side effects. After all, you are putting a foreign virus into the body, and there were side effects because of that virus. Well, that was 20 years ago. Science has progressed since then, now we're much more cautious about our press releases. We're much more modest in terms of the claims that we're making. But yes, scientists do believe that this could be one of the ways to go. Gene therapy. Gene therapy that will, quote, fix broken genes. Now think about this. Think of all the genes that have basically one misspelling causing tremendous grief and damage throughout your family tree. Look at your family tree. How many genetic diseases lurk in the average family tree that you don't even know about? That's the promise of gene therapy. We're not there yet, but gene therapy trials are now being conducted for sickle cell anemia.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics. And if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I'm also on Facebook, and on Facebook I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it talks about, well, what I do for a living. I work on string theory, which we think but cannot yet prove that it is the fable theory of everything, which is the theory that eluded Einstein for the last 30 years of his life, a theory of all creation that unifies all the forces of nature into a single equation, perhaps no more than an inch long. Stay tuned when we bring on Jay Olshansky talking about the science of immortality and the aging process on exploration. Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to continue our dialogue concerning genetic engineering. And we're going to bring on one of the bright rising stars of the entire field, Dr. Robert Lanza. And just remember that we're now beginning the process of tinkering with our genes. There are roughly 20,000 genes that are basically a blueprint for what it takes to create a human being. That's right, 20,000 genes. And we're able to isolate simple ones that are involved with certain diseases. As I mentioned, one genetic defect in one gene, in one gene is responsible for Tay-Sachs among Jewish people, cystic fibrosis among Northern Europeans, and sickle cell anemia among certain African Americans. And then, if you widen the scope to include multigenic diseases, then you're starting to talk about diseases like schizophrenia, in which case many, many genes have been implicated. And of course, there are also impacts with the environment as well. And beginning with the field of biotechnology and young rising stars like Robert Lanza, we're in the process of cloning and actually changing our genetic heritage, which raises all sorts of ethical problems as well. Well, we'll be talking about all these things with Dr. Robert Lanza, biogeneticist, biotechnologist, and one of the leaders in the field. And some people think that just like physics dominated the 20th century, with the coming of electronics and computers and the internet and the atomic bomb, many people think that the 21st century will be dominated by biotechnology. So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Robert Lanza. Dr. Lanza, you're one of the bright rising stars in the field of biotechnology, making waves wherever you go. But as a child, 
How did you first get interested in biotechnology and science as a kid? Well, as a young boy, I was rarely allowed outside the house. So I was on my own, and and I went to the ponds to catch snapping turtles and would climb trees uh, to catch screech owls and flying squirrels. And so I'd go on these long trips trying to figure out the universe. And even at that age, I was in awe at the world. But unfortunately, my parents and none of my sisters had finished high school. So, so I, too, was placed in this slow class with the kids that used to throw the spitball. So, so I came up with this <laughs> I, I plan. I know that. <laughs> yeah. So, so I came up with this plan to prove myself. And, and, and actually, at that time, Watson and Crick had just cracked the genetic code uh, just a few years earlier. So I, I decided to carry out what amounts to genetic engineering. As a kid? Yes. I was actually a, a teenager. Uh, I was around 14. And I had actually seen a, a, a black squirrel, and so I wanted to, to see whether I could make it albino or vice versa. And so I went to my biology teacher, and, and uh, he told me that it was impossible, and, and everyone laughed at me. But I was determined to prove him wrong, so I went into my basement, and, and I figured out actually how to alter the genetic makeup of a white chicken to make him black by transferring genes from the pigmented chicken. And my mother thought I was just trying to hatch chicken eggs. So uh, I decided, you know, to, to really prove this, I really needed to work with someone who understood that stuff. So, you know, to me, the, the greatest place on the planet was Harvard Medical School. So I saved up my nickels and dimes and took the buses and trolleys into Boston. And it actually took me half a day to get there. I didn't even know where I was going. So I tried to, to, to go in through the front door, and, and the god didn't let me. It was sort of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, when the palace god said, go away. But rather than leaving, I went around the back, and I waited by the Dipsy Dumpster, and I saw this little short, bald guy walking up with khaki pants and a, and a bunch of keys. And I thought, oh, here's the janitor. So he opens the door, and I just sort of slip in. And a little way down the corridor, he says, well, can I help you, sir? And I said, no, I'm looking for a Harvard doctor. Now, what I didn't know was that was Stephen Kufler, chairman of the neurobiology department. He had, had just been nominated for the Nobel Prize. Is that but, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I thought he, you know, uh, that he was just the janitor, and, and so I told him that I was friends with the janitor down the street from me and, and that I worked in the, in, in the cafeteria. And so he asked me why I was there, and, and I said I was trying to, you know, uh, alter the genetic uh, makeup of a white chicken. And, and then I, I went on, you know, explaining about DNA, thinking, you know, he doesn't have a clue. And then he, he actually said, well, I know someone that can help you. And he brought me upstairs, you know, past all the spaghetti wire and all to, to Josh Sains, who, who now runs actually the Brain Center at Harvard. And he was just a grad student at the time. So after talking with Josh all day, uh, they invited me back to repeat those experiments. And, and the work was ultimately published in Nature in, in 1974. And, and every now and then I would go back and the janitor would show up. And I was always so <laughs> excited to see him. And it wasn't until later that I realized who he was. So that, and, that was actually how I, I got into the hard science. And where did you get the equipment for your high school project uh, interfering with the genes of living organisms? Where did you get your equipment? Well, well, it was really very challenging. You know, you have to remember I was just a little boy, very short. I didn't look very old. And, you know, I'd be trying to get syringes, so I'd be at the hospitals trying to convince the doctors to, to give me syringes. And then I would go to another hospital and, and convince them and to give me penicillin. And, and there was actually a, a gentleman who actually worked at one of the state labs who had a centrifuge in his cellar. So I put these all together and, and managed over a period of time to, to figure out how to do it in a very crude way. So you created your own biotech laboratory in your basement? Yeah, right next to the kid? furnace. My mother actually had no idea I was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Amazing. You know, when I was a kid, I built an atom smasher in my garage. You're kidding. Yeah, I had to go to <laughs> so Westinghouse. you understand. <laughs> yeah, I went to Westinghouse to get uh, 400 oh, pounds of that. transformer steel and 22 miles of copper wire wow, to build a, a 2.3 million electron volt Betatron in the garage. <laughs> and you, <laughs> as a kid, was out there meddling with the genes of living organisms. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it was a fun time. Okay. Well, moving on now, let's talk about cloning. We've okay. heard so much about cloning in the media. Arnold Schwarzenegger even had a movie where he where he met his clone, and uh, the whole movie was based on criminal clones. Mm -hmm. Well, what is a clone, and how far are we in terms of being able to clone animals, uh, primates, and maybe even humans? Well, well, cloning is conceptually very simple. You, you basically take the cell from the animal you want to clone and, and put it next to an empty egg that ha has had all of its DNA removed. And then you send a, an electrical charge through the two cells, and, and they fuse. So when the cells fuse, the DNA from the cell you want to clone is, is dumped into the empty egg. And another approach is just to inject the DNA directly into the empty egg. Uh, the next step is, is to use chemicals then to fool that egg into thinking it's been fertilized. And so then this cell starts to divide, and you end up with an embryo that can then be placed in a surrogate mother. And then if everything goes well, uh, you can end up with a genetically identical copy of the animal you want to clone. And, of course, you know, we've cloned at this point uh, many dozens of species. We've cloned endangered species, uh, glow-in-the-dark mice, whole herds of cows. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there have been many farm animals, goats, pigs, cows, and even pets such as cats and dogs. Now, we had a chance to interview uh, Ian Wilmot, uh, mm -hmm. the Scottish scientist who actually cloned Dolly. Uh, explain to us exactly what he did. Uh, what was Dolly and... Was Dolly premature age? There was some controversy about that. Well, yes. Ian Wilman was the first to actually clone uh, an, a mammal from an adult cell. And so he actually took a cell and, and, and went through the methodology I just described, and then th that DNA was placed into an empty uh, egg from, from another sheep. And when Dolly was born, everyone thought... Uh, because of the length of the telomeres, and these are the ends of the chromosomes that determine how many times a cell can divide, uh, we all thought that, that cloning basically, Dolly was basically an older sheep, you know, uh, you know, in, in disguise. And so what we actually did is published a paper in 2000 that actually showed actually that that wasn't the case, that you can actually start out with an old cement cell that's decrepit, and the clone procedure actually allowed the more so that the cells actually had twice the lifespan that they normally should. Uh, so, uh, again, the process is very irregular, so there's a possibility that, you know, that they, they may actually live shorter or longer, and, and a lot of that depends on many factors. So, in other words, the cloned animal, in some sense, may actually be an improved version of the original animal with longer telomeres? Well, certainly at the cellular level, we know that that is the case. Now, you know, obviously aging is very complex. There are other environmental factors that go into it. But certainly at the, the cellular level, uh, we know that in some of these experiments, we actually have cells that, that lived uh, quite extensively longer. Okay. Now, what kinds of animals have been cloned? I understand that uh, pets have been cloned, mm -hmm. and I even went to uh, Dallas, Texas with a film crew from BBC Television where we went to a ranch where we saw clones of clones of clones, mm -hmm. and uh, one series of animals, uh, we had like eight animal calves all lined up in a line. They were all identical twins. So what kinds of animals have been cloned? 
Well, uh, you know, the list is quite extensive, uh, you know, starting from mice, rats, and rabbits, uh, again, all of the various farm animals, goats, pigs, horses. In fact, uh, we created an entire herd of cows that actually was making human proteins in their milk uh, that were genetically modified. Uh, on top of that, of course, uh, you know, there are multiple different endangered species that have now been cloned. So in, in theory, virtually every mammal should uh, in the future be able to be cloned. Now, in the newspapers, every once in a while, some oddball announces that he's done the first human clone. However, as I understand, no primate has been successfully cloned. What's the status with regards to cloning primates and humans? Well, uh, as you point out, cloning primates, including humans, ha has been problematic. You know, back in 2001, we were actually were the first group to clone uh, the first early-stage human embryos, and we were doing that for uh, generating cell stem cells, not for reproductive purposes. And, and, and even to this date, uh, the technique isn't perfected. Of course, there was the Wong scandal where for a while uh, we thought that someone had that technique worked out. Uh, in fact, just a few months ago, we published a scientific paper where we showed for the first time that human cloning can't actually successfully reprogram human cells back to a normal embryonic state, and, and we're still working on that. Now let's talk about your work, which is uh, nothing less than fantastic. Uh, first of all, with endangered animals, you've been able to essentially bring back to life, genetically speaking, organisms that have been dead for 25 years. Explain your work. Well, as you know, about 100 species go extinct every day, and, and those genes are lost from the planet forever. And, and so seeing that we're the ones that cause most of these extinctions, uh, you know, I, a while back I thought, that, well, perhaps, you know, we had some responsibility to see if we could use some of our tools the best we can to, to reverse that. So back in 2000, I actually decided I would try to clone a gaur, which is an endangered ox-like creature uh, from Asia, and it had been hunted almost to the verge of extinction. And, and I actually got some cells uh, that, from an animal that had died a few years earlier and, and tried to clone it using ordinary uh, domestic cow eggs. And, and many of my colleagues said, that, well, Bob, that's impossible. You, you can't get a clone. You can't clone one species using the eggs from another species. And it turned out we actually were able to generate a beautiful little baby Gower embryos. Uh, we actually sent them off to Iowa, Iowa by FedEx Overnight Express, and they were implanted into ordinary farm cows. And, and nine months later, uh, we got a baby Gower, which we called Noah. It, it was born alive, walking around and, and bellowing. But then a couple days later, it died of dysentery. So everyone said, See, Bob, it doesn't work. So I went back to the San Diego Zoo and, and convinced them to, you know, let's give this a try again. So they said, well, you know, we, we actually have this what we call stud 391 uh, that died back in 1980, a quarter of a century earlier. And he said, it would be great if you could uh, bring that animal, resurrect that animal so we could reintroduce that valuable genetic material in, into our highly inbred uh, 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 group of animals that they had. So they sent me a vial of these cells, and we transferred them into some empty cow eggs, and they were sent off again to Iowa and, and, and implanted in some, some beef cattle that served as the surrogate moms. And, and we started with 16 pregnancies, and nine months later we were down to, to just two. And so there we were back in 2003. We were secretly gathered out in this farm out in the middle of nowhere, and we were watching this cow give birth by C-section. And, and I remember, you know, that, you know when the, they started the C-section, there was some splatting of blood, and, and the, the vet reached in and pulled out from the mother's belly you know, these two small hooves. 
And when they started to massage it, you know, suddenly it, its eyes opened and its ears started to wiggle and, and it let out this big uh, bellow and everyone applauded. And, and the whole thing was so surreal. Here we were out in a farm in Iowa watching a beef cow give birth to this exotic endangered animal uh, that's normally born in the bamboo jungles of Southeast Asia. It was really exciting. Now, since then, I guess many other people have followed in your footsteps, right? So I guess many endangered animals have been brought back. Yes, that, that is correct. And just recently uh, in, in South Korea, I understand that they, they cloned a, 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 an endangered wolf. Uh, you know, the, the hope is we've actually been in dialogue, uh, you know, with some folks in China about the giant panda. But also, too, work is now going on to clone cheetahs uh, and, and even the extinct Bucato mountain goat. Now, I understand that the competition is so fierce that in South Korea, one of their leading researchers was tempted to commit fraud and basically uh, faked all his papers claiming these fantastic results. Uh, Could you elaborate? Yeah, actually, back at the early part of this decade, we actually, you know, there was an article on the cover of Wired where we were on the verge. We actually had cloned a pretty advanced stage human embryo. And at the time, everyone thought it was eminent that we were going to be publishing, actually creating stem cells. And then just out of the blue, this group in South Korea, which no one had any knowledge of, published a paper in Science saying they had done it. So obviously, they this this individual thought he could do it, and, and his name was Wong. And unfortunately, it turned out many years later uh, that the whole thing had been fabricated. It was just a complete disaster. You know, it actually, you know, terminated most of the research we were doing. Uh, everyone had just assumed that this feat had been accomplished. Uh, you know, it was one of the biggest scandals in scientific history. It, it, was, it, was, it was just terrible. And in fact, some of my colleagues were wondering why he did it to disgrace the whole country, because at some point it would come out. However, the leading theory is that he probably thought that some group around the world was going to do it anyway. So why not simply beat them out by a few months to a few years? And then people will forget. People will overlook things and not go into the details and find out that he was a total fraud. No, absolutely. I I know he was convinced that in a few months we were going to publish a paper showing we could do it. And then everyone would say, see, it works. And, you know, and then he would have gone on and got his Nobel Prize. And in fact, the government gave him millions and millions of dollars and, and literally thousands of human eggs. And so I'm sure he was certain that he would be able to achieve it and and no one would ever know. In fact, he pulled into his, his, his group, you know, some of the top uh, cloning experts in the world, uh, you know, Shatton and even Ian Wilmot in the end was, was working with him. So I'm sure he figured out with all of the brain power and resources that this would be pretty simple to do. And, and, and as you know, it's turned out to be a lot more difficult than anyone thought. Now, let's talk about something that is science fiction, okay. uh, bringing back extinct animals, including uh, the Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Um, on this show, we've had people that are very interested in sequencing the genome of the Neanderthal, uh, our nearest uh, species, which died out tens of thousands of years ago in, in uh, Europe. And believe it or not, uh, they expect the full genome of the Neanderthal to be sequenced in the coming years. And there's talk about maybe bringing back the Neanderthals. Um, any comments? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, on many of these, you know, extinct species, including the Neanderthal and dinosaurs, that at some point in the future we may have that technology. Uh, I, I think, you know, even today I, I know, like, for instance, when you come to my house, I have this six-foot brontosaurus bone, bone that weighs 800 pounds, and 
and, you know, it's from one of the largest dinosaurs that ever roamed the earth. And the first thing everyone asks me is, is Bob, are you going to clone this? And I tell them, you can't clone from stone. You need living cells or certainly the tissue. And, and as you mentioned, once we have the genome, we may be able to incorporate that into a living cell. Now, the thing to remember is that it's a little more complicated than that because there's two genomes in the cell, the mitochondrial genome, and that has to talk with the nuclear genome. So that presents a bit of a problem because even if you have the DNA for you know the for the, the species itself, what determines you or, or the Neanderthal or, or, or the dinosaur, you still need to figure out how to get that to be able to to interact with the the, the maternally uh, transferred uh, genetics. So uh, again, you know you know you know I I always say that you're not going to be seeing dinosaurs in your backyard anytime soon. Uh, again, the, the Neanderthal tissue as well as the the mammoth uh, that was unearthed a few years ago. Uh, you have to realize that, that after years of freezing and thawing, that uh, there have been holes poked in the animal's DNA. And, and right now, molecular biologists don't know how to fill, fill in the gaps. And, and the same thing applies, I think, to the Tasmanian tiger, which died out in, in the 1930s uh, in, in Australia. But I think someday we are going to learn how to either sequence the entire genome or to repair the DNA. But again, that's going to be many years off. Now, with the woolly mammoth, we've actually had several people involved in that project on exploration, mm -hmm. and they tell me that if you extract DNA from the, the carcasses of these animals that died thousands and thousands of years ago in Siberia, you, get, you just get fragments, little pieces here and there all over the place, and it's pretty hard to make sense out of it. However, with computers, uh, with computers, we're going to get very good at putting pieces together and having the computer uh, put the jigsaw puzzle together. So what do you think? Maybe one day a computer using what is called bioinformatics, mm -hmm. do you think they may be able to piece it together using, let's say, a blueprint of an elephant genome? I think absolutely. I think we have a lot of tricks in, in our toolbox, uh, something known as homologous recombination, which would allow us to go in and splice the genes right in precisely where we'd like them. And, and there are some newer techniques uh, evolving. And then, of course, you would require a very powerful computer, seeing that uh, I think someone once compared it to shredding up the New York uh, phone directory into little pieces and then having to reassemble it. But with computers, as you know, you know they're very powerful, and, and we're discovering new tricks. So I, I think sometime in the future, yes, that we definitely should be able to do this. Now, about two months ago, I did a book tour in London, and I went to Oxford, and I had dinner um, with uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, one of the leading uh, biologists in the world. And he's on record as stating that perhaps one day we'll be able to take the genome of a human, compare it to the genome of a chimpanzee, analyze the genes that are different, and then with a computer program, interpolate, interpolate between them in order to get the best approximation for the genome of the missing link, Australopithecus. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he says this is an outrageous idea. Mm -hmm. He's very careful to say that. But it's an idea that can't be ruled out. Uh, you have any thoughts about such, as, such an outrageous idea as one day bringing back not just a Neanderthal, but the missing link? 
I, I think uh, all that is possible in the future. There's no question about it. Once, once we have the tools to manipulate the genetics, uh, you know, already today we know how to knock out genes, for instance, to increase the, the muscle mass of, of an animal to, to twice its, its, its original uh, amount. So I think we already have some of those tools, and, and, and uh, we're adding them very quickly. So, yes, I think it could be done, and, but as uh, you mentioned, I think there's this ethical concern that it will probably prevent it from occurring. I mean, even when we, you know, generated the first cloned embryo, even for medical purposes, I mean, it was a huge outcry. It's very, very controversial. So, yes, in theory, I think we, we will eventually have the scientific tools to, to do it. The question will be, should we? <laughs> and speaking about ethics and the dark side, maybe you saw the movie The Island. In that movie, it's a very dark plot. Uh, people find out, uh, much to their shock, that they are actually clones, clones of a, of a real person. They didn't realize that they were imposters. They, they always thought they were real humans. Mm -hmm. But they were cloned in order to harvest the organs of their body. In other words, they were raised to be killed mm -hmm. so that the organs of their body could be harvested and then given to a rich man who actually paid big bucks to have their body cloned. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you can't clone memories. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not possible. But uh, do you think that is the way some people are going to go? Or do you think we'll simply grow organs separately from having to clone the entire body? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a consensus in the medical and scientific community that you would never allow any kind of a clone to go past the first uh, several days of, of cell division. So it would be smaller than, you know, the head of a pin. So I, I think what we would do is, is what we're doing now is, is you would create uh, embryonic stem cells or, or what we call now IPS cells for, for pluripotent stem cells. And, and those cells are immortal and they grow, and we can now turn those into virtually every cell type in the body. And through a new techniques that are developing in, in a field known as tissue engineering, we can reconstitute those into more complex tissues and structures. In fact, I published a paper with, uh, with uh, Tony Attaler uh, a number of years ago where we actually used uh, a cloned cells from a cow to create, actually to grow in the lab, uh, kidneys that actually were able to remove toxic materials when we transplanted them back into the animal they were, they were cloned from. And those cells were very smart. They had assembled into the glomeruli, uh, into all the various elements of the kidney. And, and since that time, uh, work has been done to, to, to grow in the lab entire bladders that have been used in patients. And in fact, uh, there's work now where people have actually created primitive beating using uh, this tissue engineering technique. So, so one day you're going to go to the hospital, we'll take a skin cell, and we'll just grow you up a new kidney or, or whatever you need. And speaking about that, uh, I went with a film crew from BBC Television down to Wake Forest University, where you're also a professor. Mm -hmm. And we actually went through uh, Tony Atala's laboratory where we photographed uh, uh, heart valves that are, are opening and closing, opening and closing, heart valves that were grown from your own cells. Mm -hmm. So now we can grow bladders. The first windpipe was grown recently. Now, where is it going to go? Are we going to be able to grow, for example, a liver? If that happens, think of all the people who die because they don't get a liver in time, like Mickey Mantle, the great baseball giant, died of liver failure. Mm -hmm. uh, is the liver, the pancreas, uh, are they coming? 
Absolutely. We're making enormous progress on tissue engineering virtually every organ system in the body, including bones and tendons. And, and also, too, we're, we're now on the, the, the forefront of what we uh, now are able to do is, is to actually a new paradigm in medicine where we're able to actually generate early developmental cells that only exist transiently in the embryo and use them to repair the adult body almost like nanoparticles. So, for instance, we published a paper uh, a couple of years ago where we created what we call these hemangioblasts, and they were like ambulance cells. And when we injected them into the body, we found that in animals that had had massive heart attacks, that it actually cut the death rate in half, a, sim a simple injection. Or in animals where, for instance, they would otherwise have their legs amputated due to lack of blood flow, we completely restored the blood flow by injecting these cells. In, in the same manner, uh, the liver, uh, we, we believe we have cells uh, that will be able to repair that. So I think in the next few years, you're going to see a lot more of this work published. And, and yes, I think uh, you're going to be able to repair virtually any worn out or dysfunctional tissue in the body. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to know more about my work, go to my website. It's mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And it's about, well, it's about what I do for a living. I work in something called string theory. And I've written five New York Times bestsellers, and my Facebook site has five million fans. So go to my website, mkaku.org. Well, we were talking about the promise of biotechnology, but what about the perils of biotechnology? We're now tinkering with the genetic heritage of the human race. And there are two kinds of genetic engineering. One is germline genetic engineering, where you can get rid of certain bad genes forever from your germline. And then there's somatic uh, genetic engineering, where you change the genes of just one generation. In other words, just you. Some philosophers and ethicists are worried that we might get carried away. That is, not just banish the bad genes for one person, but banish the bad genes for that entire germline forever. You see, sometimes genes have a good purpose, even though they look bad. Look at malaria, for example. As we mentioned, one copy of the gene actually helps you protect against uh, malaria. And sickle cell anemia, of course, is a, is a gene that we definitely want to re repair. However, if you get two copies of that gene, you can come down with sickle cell anemia. So one copy may actually protect you against malaria, but two copies and you get sickle cell anemia, which causes pain, suffering, and eventually by the time you're in your 40s, perhaps you die of cardiovascular failure or, or strokes. So in other words, this is a very volatile technology. It's a technology that we have to discuss democratically because it's the technology of the future.